Today's podcast is brought to you by PNC, supporting early education, racial and social justice, and economic development through programming within the communities we serve. Greetings. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Kaleidoscope Podcast. I'm your host, Nick DeCorville. As we've dedicated time to platforming those that need a louder voice, this episode will also focus on the works published within our magazine. For those unfamiliar, Kaleidoscope, beginning in 1979, pioneered the exploration of the experience of disability through the lens of literature and fine arts. Fiction, personal essays, poetry, articles, book reviews, and various artistic media, including two-dimensional art, three-dimensional art, drama, theater, and dance are featured in the pages of various issues. In 2022, we began a podcast to increase accessibility and expand our reach. This award-winning publication expresses the experience of disability from a variety of perspectives, including individuals, families, friends, caregivers, healthcare professionals, and educators, among others. The material selected for Kaleidoscope challenges stereotypical, patronizing, and sentimental attitudes about disabilities. In this episode, we are featuring selections from issue 87 of our magazine, exploring the ties that bind. Ties can often provide comfort and security, but they can also wrap around us too tightly. These ties can become restricting if we allow them, or they may be what keep us grounded. As we explore each reading, consider the ways the themes in our selections relate to your own life or how they may relate to others. Up first, we have The Wish by Rolly Andrews. This story follows a young male protagonist that yearns to be an explorer despite his physical challenges. A resident of New Zealand, Andrews has seen publication in Fragmented Voices magazine and Rural Fiction magazine. What's nice about Andrews' work is that it covers such a long span of time in such a short amount of space, much like how it can feel as we age while traversing on this spinning globe. Let's take a listen. The Wish by Rolly Andrews. What are you in for? Corrective surgery for my spina bifida. What about you? Leukemia. Bugger, that's a bummer. Will your hair grow back? Yeah, my hair will grow back. It's just the chemo that makes it fall out. Are you going to be okay? I mean, you're not going to die, are you? Jeez, I hope not, mate. Now that would be a bummer. What about you? Are you going to live? Yeah, I'm going to live, but in a wheelchair. My stumbling days are over. Sorry, man, that's bad. Yeah. Asher expelled weighty air from his chest. He looked at the ceiling, counted those stupid pitted ceiling tiles. Yeah, he thought, it's too bad. It's bad. That's the end of my exploring days. Not that that ever really started. In reality, they'd actually ended before they began. Ever since he could remember, he wanted to be an explorer. Scott, Livingston, Cook, Amundsen, Hillary, and so many more. He knew them all. He memorised their stories of bravery, discovery and glory. His bedroom filled chock-a-block with books, encyclopedias and posters. 
He even had an old-fashioned globe with a raised relief. And here he was, Asher Challies, age 11, lying in Ward 9, staring at a ceiling, knowing he would never walk again. Are you okay? The girl on the next bed asked. She looked over and gave Asher a timid smile. He'd been asleep when she'd been wheeled in, so he didn't know how long she'd been there. Waiting for the space to come up at the other end, she said, when, she, when he woke up. They don't like putting boys and girls together. How wacky is that? Not used to company and not feeling like talking, Asher mumbled. mumbled. I'm okay, thanks. He remembered looking over, noticing her bald head. He tried not to stare, but without hair, he found it pretty hard to gauge her age. Probably about the same age as me, he concluded after a moment. He thought she looked pretty. He tried to focus on her face, imagining her with hair. Yeah, she was pretty all right, even if her eyebrows and eyelashes had also fallen out. I'm sorry for staring, Asher said. It's okay. You don't see many bald girls, and I'm especially bald. I worry my teeth will fall out too. They won't, will they? Asher questioned in alarm. <laughs> of course not, silly boy. My eyes will fall out first. Anyway, my name's Alex. What's yours? Asher. Asher, are you okay? He wasn't. Tears now pulled in the divots of his cheeks. Alex jumped out of her bed, still hooked up to fluid in a bag. She flung her arms around him. Don't cry, Asher. Don't cry. Not being able to walk is not the end of the world. I know, he sniffled. But not being able to be an explorer is. Asher, what do you want for your 17th? I want a picnic on the beach. Asher, darling, you say that every year, and every year it's the same. We can't do that. We can't get your chair anywhere near the sand, and your father's far too old to carry you now. No such word as can't, Mum. I know, darling. I'm sorry. But what about going to the lake instead? Fresh water, sea water. What's the difference? There's a shed load of difference. Abel Tasman didn't discover New Zealand by puddling around in a pond. Asher, I wish you would stop thinking about explorers. Anyway, there's nothing left to discover. You, me, your father, we're all born too late. Everything's been done. Bullshit, Mum. I will find something, believe me. You say you wish for me to stop. Well, my wish is for me to start. I will have a picnic on the beach. It was my favourite place when I was a kid, remember? I could walk then, barely. Trundle into the sea by myself, feel the sand beneath my toes, the cold water, the sun, and the breeze on my face. Smell the salty air. Please don't deny me one of my greatest pleasures. I love you, Mum, and I know that you love me. So, can we please try and do this? We'll see what your father says. No. Asher drove to the beach in his adapted car his parents bought him for his birthday. He kicked off his shoes and upon exiting the car, didn't bother transferring to his chair. Instead he grabbed a long instead he grabbed his long forgotten crutches 
and lurched toward the sand. The sand felt warm and nourishing on his feet. His mood buoyed by the burst of independence and achievement. Excuse me, ma'am, he called out to a passing mother with her children in tow. Can you please throw these crutches under my car? It's the green Toyota. Yes, of course, the woman said sympathetically. Are you going to be okay getting over the dunes? Thank you, and yes, I'll be fine. Enjoy your swim. I hope I'll see you down there soon. The sand was hotter than Asher initially thought, and by the time he crawled to the top of the dunes, he had blisters on his hands and knees. Naked and sweating, he took a break at the top, resting his back against a clump of pakao grass. He grinned. Stretched out before him was the immense Pacific Ocean, the horizon playing hide-and-seek between the blue sky and the bluer sea. Made it, he thought. He heard the girls coming before he saw them, gossiping and giggling. That's all girls seem to do. They walked past, five girls about his age, all wearing bikinis, smothered in sunscreen and cheap, sweet perfume, carrying bags and towels. Hi! One of the girls called as she walked past. Hi, he replied. Asher? Asher? Is that you? He looked up, sun in his eyes training to see. Yes, I'm Asher. It's me, Alex. Remember me? He involuntarily grinned. Oh my God, Alex. Yes, I do remember you. You have hair now. Beautiful long blonde hair. Oh my goodness. I had my eyes and teeth too. They both laughed. So nice to see you, they both said simultaneously. Do you need a hand getting down to the beach? My friends and I can support you if you wish. Please don't be shy. I can see your hands and knees are a bit cut up. Happy to help. The girls sunbathed in the sun, swam and shared their picnic with Asher. All the while, Alex and Asher caught up, swapping horror stories about teachers, school and medical adventures. What are you going to do after school? Alex asked. I'm going to study electronics at Canterbury. What about you? I want to study marine biology, probably in Auckland. So are you a bit of a gadget man then? I guess so, he replied. Well, take a look at this then, she said, smiling, wrenching into a bag. At first he couldn't see what it was, but quickly worked out it was a drone. Do you want to fly it? Shit, yes, Alex, can I? Thank you so much. After today, you can even keep it. I don't ever use it. I think my father bought, bought it for me to stop me whining about not having a car. Did it work? Asher asked. Hell no. The rest of the afternoon, they reconnected and took turns flying the drone. They swapped instance before they left, promising to keep in touch. Three years later, Alex contacted Asher out of the blue. Hey, Asher, remember me? Hey, you still got that drone? Wow, so nice to hear from you. Yep, sure have. You gave me the bug. I've bought another one since. It's wicked. Top of the range. I've even installed a camera and a heat sensor. Why? Well, my professor wants to make a field trip to Fiordland. He's studying the decline in dolphin numbers there. During next semester's break, he wants to do a survey. A drone with an experienced operator will be invaluable for the census. I've told him about your disability and he's cool. We'll stay on board a launch and he says he can ensure it's accessible for you. 
What do you think? Well, I have some time to myself. I'm never going to be able to explore Fiordland by foot. So will I have time to fly the drone over the land? Can't see why not, Asher. So that's a yes then? Yep, that's a yes. Christchurch Press headline, March the 18th, 2021. CU student discovers fame lost Fiordland moose herd. When asked what he would do next, Asher Charlie says he would undertake expeditions with his girlfriend Alec McManus to find the South Island Kukao and the probably extinct Huia. There is a whole lot of world of undiscovered and flora and fauna out there and I intend to rediscover them. The end. Well, I have some time to myself. I'm never going to be able to explore Fjordland by foot. So will I have time to fly the drone over the land? Can't see why not, Asher. So that's a yes then? Yep, that's a yes. Headline, the Christchurch Press, March the 18th, 2021. CU student discovers famed lost Fiordland moose herd. When asked what he would do next, Asher Charlie said he would probably undertake expeditions with his girlfriend, Alec McManus, to find the South Island Kakako and the probably extinct Huia. There's a whole world of discovered flora and fauna out there that needs to be rediscovered, and I intend to find them. Coming up next, we have two poems by artist Shannon Balam, a senior lecturer at Utah State University. Balam is the author of The Red Riding Papers. In her works, Beauty and the Owls, Balam explores nature through a unique perspective, providing details to a scene that may he may accidentally overlook. Beauty. Shannon Ballum, a slate blue dipper in the Logan River, dipping on thin legs. In the wetlands, silver strands of spider silk draped across the road, all at once and spontaneously spilling, spinning out silk, floating endlessly. Two colts, one all black, a white star on its forehead, one chestnut brown with all white feet followed me along the fence, nudging its velvet nose. Three sandhill cranes sailing across a dusk blue sky. A monarch butterfly on the path, motionless. Dark orange, black outlines that look like they were drawn by a felt tip pen, ink bleeding, delicate antenna, legs, white spots on the body and wings. We thought it was dead, but in the car it started to move, unfolding its wings. When we got home, I laid it in the milkweed, breathing. The Owls In the nest we spot them, two baby great horned owls, fluffy and camouflaged to look like decaying tree matter. Huge eyes, flexed with gold shimmer, stare out at us. A pink crabapple petal, thin as tissue paper, clings to my walker. Loosen your grip on helplessness and sorrow. The crocus petals are dusted with saffron, a wash of light on the ash tree, the gold light shining in the owl's eyes. 
Following the theme of nature, let's listen to the poem Plastic Butterfly by Caitlin C. Baker. Within it, the speaker compares a butterfly to a mosquito, while also making some rather interesting observations. An educator from Northeast Ohio, Baker has been published in Paddler Press, Red Ogre Review, and others. Plastic Butterfly by Caitlin C. Baker I had never known a butterfly to drink blood with blue plastic wings spread against young moon skin and its proboscis dipped into my veins. Mosquitoes must have told the secret of their aqua vitae spiced with experimental pills and saturated with a misunderstood ailment. A palate that favored my syrup to milkweed proved that we aren't the only species who can fall in love with strange nectar. It untucked its silver tongue from my body, and in its wake, a rare flower unfolded new petals in the crook of my elbow. In the story Brain Sag from Susan Whiting Kemp, the narrator deals with a serious medical prognosis that ties them to a condition in unforeseen ways. Kemp, a writer out of Seattle, Washington, encourages all of those with an upright headache to seek a specialist concerning cerebrospinal fluid leaks. Brain Sag by Susan Whiting Kemp My cerebrospinal fluid leaked, causing my brain to sag within my skull, like a boat sinking to the bottom of a bathtub. No, less serenely, like a body settling onto a bed of nails. No, still less serenely, like a gourd being flattened by an elephant's foot. Yes, that sounds right. For a year, I didn't know this was the cause of my crushing headaches. I thought it might be a trigger food, and so I ate nothing but rice and potatoes to no avail. I took migraine medicine, which did as much good as eating Pez from a plastic doctor dispenser. A neurologist finally diagnosed me. You have brain sag, she said, and so it was painfully obvious, pun intended, that I had a cerebrospinal fluid leak. There was a hole somewhere in the membrane surrounding my brain or spinal cord. Now I knew, so finally I would be healed. Not so fast, leaker. The cause was unknown, and so they called it a spontaneous leak, which brought to mind spontaneous combustion, which seemed fitting somehow. With no known cause, the durable was hard to find, like searching alongside the entire Amazon River for a stray trickle of water. And so I underwent procedure after procedure, Scan after scan, injection after injection. Doctors tried epidural blood patches to cure me. They removed my blood like vampires, but unlike vampires, they injected it back alongside my spinal cord. It didn't work. In the meantime, nothing stopped the pain, but caffeine eased it. And so tethered to an IV stand, I joked about veins full of Starbucks. Morphine was useless. It slipped through my blood vessels, uncaring, just sightseeing. Dilaudid, morphine's odd cousin, tried to help. It made me more willing to endure. Some people think you can't leak for that long without dying, and yet there I was, alive, half wishing I wasn't, with brain fluid draining, seeping, debilitating, deflating. I took to my bed. No, that sounds like a choice. 
The vertigo and pain knocked me down like the bullies they were, pushing me back down every time I tried to rise. I had always wanted to be on a list, the bestsellers list, the Nobel Prize winners list, the Jeopardy winners list. I made the disabled list. That had to do. We need motionless scans of your insides, the doctor said. We have to stop your heart. Sign here. He did. And so I got my half wish to be dead. But I was only deceased for a short time, just long enough to give me my life back. Surgery and glue stopped the leak. Clue! If I'd only known, I would have grabbed my Elmer's and slathered my spine with it myself. But of course, it was no elementary school glue, but a special fibrin glue that dammed the flow. I could not have applied it on my own. My brain unsagged, floating upward to the correct position in my skull, like a rubber ducky rising in the bathwater. No, like a blue whale surfacing in the ocean. No, like the sun breaching the horizon after a terrible storm. Yes, that sounds right. I was without pain for the first time in a year and a half, all because my tiny leak was found and repaired. My rising brain allowed me, in turn, to rise. Ajula Bagal Ran is a first-generation American with an Indian heritage. Often focusing her work on her husband, who lives with cerebral palsy, Ran's poem Two Fathers explores the way a condition may bind you to your fate, for better and for worse. Two Fathers by Ajula Bagal Ran Navy sailor, Georgia farmer, factory worker, three boys' father, lifts you in and out of wheelchairs, drives you to the neighboring county's school with special education. Every month he takes you to the South Carolina Children's Clinic. Six months old in 1960, doctor said cerebral palsy, put him in an institution. He will never sit upright or walk. Ties your shoes, smiles up at you, says, you can be whatever you want, just like everyone else. Your mother, Boston-born, worn out with Georgia, leaves him, sells his homestead, takes his sons over to his sister's verdant farm. You heave your small, contorted body up from wheelchair to the towering tractor. With your brothers, you milk cows, bale hay, Come sunset, volley cow dung balls on weathered barns. Then his new wife, country widow with two children, moves his family to a little bungalow in town. They swap night and day in mill swing shifts, take you kids to ball games, clinics, camping, doctors. Surgeons work to straighten twisted legs, then home rest. Teachers send you work. You skip three grades, dream you'll be like him, a working guy. 1999, alone, by his grave, his wife says, there was never anyone like you. But don't you see him in this photo, lounging lying on the couch, our girl at three, her new kitten cradled in your arms, your office smooth, accounted hands upon their backs, child and kitten fall asleep to the peaceful clock of a father's heart. 
going with the flow of ties binding one of their family, Robert Douglas Friedman's The Weight of Gravity explores a husband helping his wife after her stay at a rehab facility. A communications consultant by day, Friedman's work appears in Story Quarterly, Slow Trains, and more. The Weight of Gravity by Robert Friedman We were almost ready. All systems go, General? My wife asked. I checked the meter on the oxygen canister to make sure it was full and turned the dial until I could feel the oxygen blowing against my hand before turning it off. Then I lifted the canister out of the trunk of the car, which was full of other oxygen canisters, and placed it in the cart. The canisters were heavy and awkward to carry, but the little two-wheeled cart made it easier. Do we have liftoff, Houston? She was still sitting in the passenger seat wearing a nasal cannula connected to a small oxygen tank on the floor. That tank used liquid oxygen, so it was very cold to the touch, but the liquid oxygen was 100% pure and helped her to breathe more easily. Undergoing final system checks, Captain, I said. Check. Awaiting further instructions, I unwrapped a new cannula, connected it to the regulator of the tank in the cart, and checked the airflow. I could feel the oxygen coming out of the two little nose prongs of the cannula, so could tell it worked. The tank held 680 liters of oxygen, and she needed 10 liters per minute, so we had 68 minutes per tank. I turned off the air, repeated the procedure with a second tank, and placed it next to the first tank in the cart. Somewhere I'd read about the early Apollo space program and how they had dual backup systems for every critical system. My wife couldn't survive for very long without the oxygen, so I followed the same philosophy. Hold tight, Corporal, I said. Hey, I thought I was a captain. Whatever. I'll bust you down to private if you cause any trouble. She snorted. Listen to you. Make him a general and it goes right to his head. Absolute power has corrupted you. Absolutely. And that surprises you? Nah, you know me. Cynical view of human nature and all that. Didn't you once call me a disillusioned idealist? Besides, you're not really a general. You're barely a colonel. Damn. I was just getting used to running my authoritarian regime. You're lucky. It's the generals they always execute. Are we ready to go yet? I'm getting antsy here. I searched in the trunk for extra cannulas and a spare regulator. The tanks wouldn't work without the regulators, so I always had a spare. I slipped everything into my backpack along with a small third oxygen tank that I tested just before leaving the house. I hoisted the pack onto my back and turned to her with a thumbs up. Houston, I said, we have a liftoff. Excellent. She climbed out of the car, removed the cannula from her nose, and quickly replaced it with the one connected to the tank in the cart. I slid a pulse oximeter onto her middle finger, and we waited a moment for the reading. Hey, I'm at 96. When I hit 100, sell. Sorry, just flashing back to my early days as a stockbroker. You mean a stock clerk. I was never a stock clerk. I started as an assistant bookstore manager before my meteoric rise to manager. Yeah, because nobody else was crazy enough to work so many hours. Except for you. I smiled. I had hidden motivations. She smiled back. Me too. Remember all those romantic nights we spent carrying the garbage out to the dumpster together? Who could forget them? The sweet smell of rotting whoppers from the Burger King down the corridor. Moonlight shining on the grease in the alley. Don't forget the rats in that secret hallway we used to get in and out of the mall after hours instead of bugging the guards to open those glass doors. That's right. Rat Alley. The wonders of nature. Okay, enough nostalgia. It's not what it used to be. Let's go. The parking lot where we were standing emptied right out onto the main street. The ground was level, so it was a good place to walk. My wife's stay at a rehab facility had strengthened her and improved her confidence after her second lung collapse in six months. But it was still scary for her to be out and about and in motion. 
Today, she seemed more eager than in the past, and I followed her with the oxygen tanks as she strode forward and peered into the windows of all the storefronts. We went into the kitchen supply store and she bought a new pair of salt and pepper shakers, while the woman behind the counter smiled and pretended not to notice all the oxygen apparatus. Don't we have like three or four sets of salt and pepper shakers already, I asked? You're not the only one around here who likes backups. Well played. Where to next? We had already walked back and forth a few times on both sides of the street. It was hot, but the street was in the shade, so the heat was bearable. How about we head up the square? Are you sure? Sure as I'll ever be. Okay. Just tell me if you need to rest. Will do. The square is built on an incline that's moderate at first and then grows steeper. It's lined with shops that my wife had visited many times in the past. And there's a small park in the center where we once stood watching them light the big Christmas tree while a choir sang carols. We had felt happy and safe then, but it was a long time ago. The square was not in the shade, and I quickly began to feel the heat of the afternoon sun and the effort of pushing the oxygen tanks up the hill. My wife was moving at a faster pace than I thought she could and didn't seem to be struggling, but I insisted on stopping and checking her oxygen level with the pulse oximeter anyway. See? 95. I'm doing fine. Yes, you are. Better than me. Poor guy. Those tanks are heavy, aren't they? Plus, you've got a spare one in your backpack, too, don't you? Didn't think you knew about that one. Of course I did. I know you. Let's sit on a bench for a moment. Maybe some ice cream? The shop was right across the street. Sounds good. I got us matching cones and we sat on the bench eating them. This stuff is good, but wildly overpriced. One of us says that every time we're here. Yes, I know. It's been a while, though. Yeah, it has. She handed me a napkin. You've got ice cream on your face. I wiped it. Thanks. They had ice cream at the rehab place, but it sucked. Ice crystals. Don't you hate that? Yes, but the food at the hospital was good. I don't think I would choose it for our next hot vacation spot, though. Agreed. Let's walk the rest of the way up to the top of the square. Are you sure? Yes. What about the blebs? She stood up. Fuck the blebs. I remembered the doctor in the emergency room explaining that blebs were little lung cysts that could burst at any moment and cause a lung to collapse. My wife had dozens of them on each of her lungs, along with scar tissue caused by an underlying illness called sarcoidosis that limited the elasticity and effectiveness of her lungs. Are you sure? Sure as shit. Come on. I knew there was no way to talk her out of it. The doctor had said to me privately that she really shouldn't be alive, but the good news was that she was now at the top of the lung transplant list. All she needed to do was be in strong enough condition to qualify for the procedure. So we walked towards the top of the hill, and her steps grew steadily surer as we passed all the shops and benches and people, and I struggled to keep pace with her in the hot sun, with the weight of gravity slowing but not stopping either of us. A professor of women's studies at the University of Delaware, author Margaret D. Stetz has dedicated her life to academia without forgetting her working-class background. In her poems Accident and Physical Therapy, Stetz explores the connections between poetry and medicine. Let's take a listen. Accident by Margaret D. Stetz The moment my poem tripped over its feet and hit the concrete, I knew it wasn't a dying fall, but serious, that my poem, wailing, would leave me, driven away by ambulance and return unrecognizable, breaks and caesuras I hadn't written, bound together with artificial hinges, bulky, 
awkward, forced, to enter a workshop for recovery. Taken out of my hands, my poem now gripped, not grasped, by specialists, slowly stretching its metaphors, bending its stiffened meanings. I feel its agony and reproach. My poem, I fear, will never forgive my carelessness in letting it stumble. But I can't forget the miracle, the instant before it crashed and smashed, when I watched it weightlessly airborne, soaring. Physical therapy. Clinic walls of white are all illusions, delusions fading as we struggle, for behind them lies the darkness of a grove, and in this forest we are blighted, gnarled, and knobby, splintered, splinted, jutting out at angles in our agony, groaning as what cannot bend is bent. Limbs hang there, deadened, sapless, trunks that will not turn are made to twist and creak. We do not lift our leafy arms to pray except for stillness. And anyway, our leaves fell on the ground when we were felled. Tagged with labels none of us can read, for some, slow sprouting, tentatively swaying into spring. For others, just the bite of blades and grinding, dissolution into sawdust, holes left by roots torn up to mark our empty places. In her poem, Beethoven's Bees, Rebecca Brothers takes a critical yet sentimental look at what German artist Beethoven might have experienced as he lost his hearing. An English teacher for over 20 years, Brothers has established herself as a full-time writer. Living with Meniere's disease, Brothers says on writing, I write because I know, very deeply, how stories teach and heal us. Beethoven's Bees by Rebecca Brothers as Beethoven lost his hearing, he would bang on his piano, a pencil clenched in his teeth, the point touching the instrument so the vibrations would rattle his skull. The sudden chord, terrible, his right hand pounding out phantom notes, piano to forte, desperate, searching as I do, for sound. His deafness started with buzzing and whining. The hearing do not realize the incredible volume of deafness. His ears became hot to the touch of loud voices, as mine do. My own tinnitus drives me to the knife block. Like Van Gogh, I too would drop my ear in the mailbox. But we know that does no good. Van Gogh and I share a diagnosis, Meniere's disease. I fall into his paintings and breathe in the familiar landscape, 
transformed by our vertigo, shining with unnatural loveliness. It is the awful inner workings we cannot touch, that part of us interior as anger, hammer, and stirrup. Fractured labyrinth, I need a farrier to slam at the bones of my inner ear, a blacksmith willing to destroy tools that have rebelled against their master. I know why sailors keep to the roar of the sea. Old roadies put their faces on the subwoofers, and I know why Beethoven beat the music out of his piano. The nauseating bell choir, the relentless concert in a venue without zoning restrictions inside his head, inside mine, the tinnitus tarantella at the volume of a tornado siren, molto fortissimo. Poor Ludwig. So much lovely music left to hear, to write, to breathe. I hope that was the last thing he heard. I hope it was music. I hope it was a long, rattling chord. Not his buzzing skull, the bees of deafness invading to sting and waste his eardrum, like the hypodermic pierces my tympanic membrane to quell the vertigo, even though it silences all but my own voice. Because bees make very poor percussionists and even worse companions. It is lonely here for me and Beethoven, for all who are stung. I wrote this poem at the beginning of my battle with Meniere's disease. This disorder induces debilitating vertigo, maddening tinnitus, and progressive hearing loss. I will eventually go deaf. I wanted readers to have a little insight into this disease, and I hoped they could connect with the images of Van Gogh's paintings, which I believe were strongly influenced by the visual disturbance that I experienced and he experienced during vertigo attacks and the unique sounds of Beethoven's powerful music that transitions suddenly abruptly from piano, very soft, to molto fortissimo, skull rattling loud. I believe Meniere's disease or another illness that causes deafness caused Beethoven to write his music this way. It is familiar to me, just as the sounds of my children's voices sometimes disappear and then sometimes rattle my own skull. I truly believe the art of Van Gogh and Beethoven and other deaf artists can help the hearing become more sensitive to this kind of struggle. Quarantine 1950 by Melanie Reitzel explores how seclusive being diagnosed with a condition can be. This creative nonfiction essay can be a reminder for listeners that while the world of medicine has made incredible strides, we still have a long way to go. Quarantine 1950, Melanie Reitzel. It was not really a hospital room with a door. I would learn about regular hospital rooms later. This was the white place I was left in after that night in which my legs could no longer do what I wanted or needed them to do on their own. I was alone in this small, curtain-enclosed space. My bed was white. My gown was white. The sheets, the blanket, the pillow, the cold metal basin on the stand to the right of my bed were all white. 
I could see no walls, only white curtains which surrounded my bed. The ceiling was white. Even the nurses who occasionally came into the room were dressed in white. Their hats and their shoes were white. There were white metal bars behind my head, below my feet, and along the sides. My bed was a cage I did not need. I could not have escaped, even if I'd tried. All I had other than the white I saw was what I heard. The doctors or nurses' shoes as they struck the floor, each making their own unique sound as they walked outside my space. The quick clop of the shoes of this one, the slower clunk of that one. When the sound stopped, I knew that loss of sound, that my curtain would open and I would see someone, but not my mother or my father. I was told they were not allowed. No one who was not dressed in white, who was not a doctor or nurse, was allowed. Years later, I would learn of the term quarantine. I cannot remember how long I was quarantined. I was only two and a half, and I did not yet have a picture of a clock in my head or a calendar like I do now. It just felt like I was trapped in a white forever. I know now from what my mother told me years later that the quarantine began when I tried to get up in the middle of the night and cried out to her that I needed to go to the bathroom. She called back that I should get up and go. My response was, I can't walk. My spinal tap was positive, hers was negative. From then on, the words polio and infantile paralysis became a different forever and permanent parts of my vocabulary. I decide I shall help that small child escape the room of white. I tell her there is a window that breaks through the space and she can hear new sounds and see new things from a street outside. The sounds are made by many things that move and display different colors. I will let her pretend she can hear the green and cream-colored trolley cars as they rattle down gray streets, and for once she won't mind the boredom of gray because it is a relief from white. On the sidewalks that line the street, she will see shops with colored signs, houses of brown or red, perhaps even orange. She'll see women in bright clothes and high-heeled shoes like her mother's that click on the pavement. Men like her father, dressed in navy blue suits, who tip their dark hats when approaching women like her mother. Women who then blush, smile, and continue walking down the street. In My Apartment by Kate Robinson, the speaker invites guests to get a view of their living space. Yet the stipulations may be a high price for both the visitor and the speaker. A resident of Ontario, Canada, Robinson enjoys spending time getting lost in her favorite bookstore while also spending time with her giant scaredy cat. My Apartment by Kate Robinson. My apartment might be messy when you come over, but it probably won't be. Probably I won't invite you if I can't clean it that day. When I am well, my apartment is spotless. It is rarely spotless. Usually the spots are like a guerrilla army, unnoticed until you realize that you are surrounded. It is dusty, but I would invite you if it were just dusty. We all have some dust on our inner shelves. You probably wouldn't notice mine. Right now, there are books on the floor and dishes in the sink, but I could make a book tower in the closet, hide the dishes in the dishwasher or the oven, dust frantically using a still damp face cloth, and invite you over. You would assume that my books are always shelved alphabetically or by color. 
you would think that I wash my dishes immediately and put them away in perfect lines in a dustless cupboard, and you would wonder if I would notice if you moved each one by a millimeter. The collection of pieces from my days would not be sitting in the corner. They would be in their places, and you would think that my days do not collect things. You would never know about the broken hinge in a box that my cat played with for a week and is still on the floor and has not been made into art. You wouldn't miss my favorite wine glass, which belonged to my grandmother and is discontinued or remember the crystal shards that mocked me from the table for days. Since I have not invited you over, the only reason to clean today is that if you showed up unexpectedly, I would have to speak to you on the stairs in the dingy hallway with the door closed. You would think that it is my landlords who are messy and wonder how I could live in a building like this. My apartment might be messy when you come over. The books may have spread like raindrops over every surface. My cat might be playing with the remains of healthy days. There may be ninja spots and soul dust and no clean cups to offer you a glass of water from. If my apartment is messy, I am no longer pretending I am comfortable in front of you. If my apartment is messy and the door is open, know that it is the same thing as wrapping my arms around you, whispering love. If my apartment is messy and I invite you in. I started writing this poem after a friend came by to drop off food for me while I was on day eight of a terrible migraine attack. Saying yes to that act of kindness was incredibly hard, and I wanted to explore why that was. As I was writing it, I realized how relatable the poem was. I think that most people, especially those with disabilities, are familiar with having a private and public self, um, whether it's every day or um, for small periods of time, like with grief or a new child. In my case, the difference between those signs is most obvious when it comes to my apartment. Thank you. Ellis Elliott is a Juno Beach, Florida resident that bows to the world. Her poems Burst and Julian Dreams takes you from the cosmos to the oceans, exploring the existential and the sublime. Her work can be found in Signal Mountain Review, among others. Hi. My name is Ellis Elliott, and my poem titles are Burst and Julian Dreams. Burst, a million trillion times as bright as the sun, cosmic gamma ray bursts are the most energetic and short-lived in the universe. Your brain vessels shattered at birth into a million stars, just like that a trillion ideas of you lost in cosmic minutes. Hope flashes like comets or bonfires or candlelight, maybe moonlight on sugared snow. Let's pretend it is poetic, sublime. Pretend in darkness we see a glint, 
pretend you're a universe we're not meant to know. Julian dreams. In your dreams, you float, buoyed and secure, following the finless dolphin to the water cavern, limbs loose and tremorless. You spin forward and down, an undulating merman. Water, the color of peacock, courses cold into your ears to soothe the fiery brain, release contracted muscles. Ligaments lengthen, sinews thaw, supple and joyous. As you swim to the surface, a flood of words. They jump and arc like fish onto the boat, filling the bow. These poems represent two sides of my particular truth in living and loving my stepson, Julian, who can't walk, talk, or feed himself. Julian dreams would be what I imagine or wish for him, and Burst addresses more of the gritty reality and the truth of loss. In product reviews number 9,235, Vacuums All Day Long, writer Shelley Jones takes the reader through a series of Amazon reviews for a vacuum with an ending that may leave readers and listeners wanting to know what happens next. A professor at a university in upstate New York, Jones teaches folklore, and her works have appeared in A Field Guide to Prehistoric Motherhood and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Product review number 9,235, Vacuums All Day Long, by Shelley Jones. Vacuums All Day Long, reviewed in the United States on January 12, 2017. Verified purchase. My wife bought me this vacuum for Christmas. It took us a while to get it out of the box and read the instruction booklet. Val and I were impressed as the vacuum wandered around the house, mapping out the table, radiator, and bookshelves. Eventually, it seemed to sniff us out in our usual spots on the couch, slowing down as it made its way closer, so as not to run over Val's toes. We let it run as long as it can before needing to return to its nest to recharge. Doot, 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 doot. The robot sounds triumphantly, proud it has found its way to the docking station in the dining room. When it's ready again, it will resume its path throughout the house, learning our trouble spots, avoiding them in the future. Update, January 30th, 2017. What a marvel this robot is, especially as we've grown older, stiffer with our aches, unable to clean up as much as we used to. Val is particularly relieved and takes the opportunity to nap while the robot cleans around her. Occasionally, she'll reach out from the couch and pet it as it comes near. The cat hisses in jealousy and sulks in another room until the robot is done. Update, May 27th, 2017. Sometimes, I sit with the robot on my lap and clean its bristles while we watch Jeopardy. The cat's hair or a stray piece of Val's yarn tangles up the roller, and I have to cut it gently with the sewing scissors. We wait for the hospital to call with an update, but the phone never rings. I plunk the robot in its dock and fall asleep in my recliner, the robot's blue battery indicator lights flashing, filling the darkness. Update, December 18th, 2017. The robot picks up everything. Dust, crumbs, cat hair, 
the browning lily petals that have fallen from the arrangements covering the dining room table. Occasionally, it will accidentally eat some of the blanket ends that dangle from the couch, and then it growls until I come and untangle the wool from its teeth. It's even swept away some of the some pieces of mail, hiding them under the sofa or behind the bookcase, as if saving me from having to read another sympathy card. I watch it weave along the floor and wish it were casting a spell, an incantation that could magically bring Val back. Update, December 26th, 2017. I wake up to a crash in the middle of the night. The microwave flashes an impossible time of zero zero. A snowstorm must have knocked out the power. The cat is growling at the vacuum, wandering around in the dark, bumping into furniture. It can't sleep, seem to sleep either now that Val's gone. I tuck it back in its cradle, fix the time on the microwave, and stumble back to bed. Update, February 10th, 2018. Sometimes I sit on the floor next to its docking station and see my house from a totally new perspective. There's cobwebs in, the, in between the chair rails in the dining room, a few inches of bare drywall where we never finished the molding, a cat st toy stuck beneath the refrigerator that the vacuum can't reach. I tap my fingers lightly on its casing and think of Val. How often did she ask if we could do something new, take a different route home from the store, or explore those streets we've never been once been down, even though we've lived here all our lives? What would she say if she saw me here on the floor now? The robot sighs, its battery fully charged, and I stand up one more, once more, unsure what to do next. Update, April 27, 2018. In my efforts to downsize, I've been cleaning out the attic. I found an old home video of Val from when we were first married. Val laughs on the television, head thrown back, eyes shimmering. She hands me a dust rag as I hold the video camera, telling me to start cleaning before guests visit. At the sound of her command, the robot chimes and comes scurrying into the living room, expecting to see Val there. It slows, searching beneath the coffee table and chair. Eventually it whines and spins in the room, empty of Val, disappointed. Update, June 12th, 2019. Do, 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 do. The robot cries, spinning in the middle of the living room, unsure where it is. Sometimes I stand behind it, trying to give it a sense of place, my body reminding it of where it is, what it was doing, what path through the house it had intended on traveling. It purrs in recognition, charging forward, its bristles sweeping cat hair and dust under it. But a few minutes later, it's whining again, lost. We return to the couch and watch Jeopardy together, but somehow the questions seem harder, more obscure. I shout out to Vale for help, but she doesn't seem to hear me, probably busy sewing something, my voice drowned out by the thrum of her machine. I pluck the dust from the robot's bristles as we continue to watch. I'll ask Vale tomorrow about the questions. Update, October 24th, 2019. The vacuum died in the night. This morning it won't budge. I place it on the docking station, but it just falls into place with a sickening thud. No melody plays. No lights greet me. We sit on the couch once more and wait for Val to come home. She will know what to do, I promise the robot. She always does. 307 people found this helpful.
This piece was inspired by my own little robot vacuum who occasionally gets lost under the dining room table. Its cries always trigger some maternal instinct in me as I crawl under the table uh, and see life from its point of view. Within Learning to Mother with Countercultural Love, writer Connie Buckmaster reviews Heather Linier's debut memoir, Raising a Rare Girl. Within their review, Buckmaster takes a critical lens to America's healthcare system while also exploring the culture of Virginia. Along with Kaleidoscope, Buckmaster's work has appeared in the New York Times, among other publications. Learning to Mother with Countercultural Love by Connie Buckmaster. In Heather Lanier's debut memoir, Raising a Rare Girl, readers journey through the early years of her daughter's life. Fiona was born with Wolf-Henshorn syndrome, a chromosomal disorder which resulted in the deletion of the tip of Fiona's fourth chromosome. The effects of Wolf-Henshorn syndrome were put starkly by doctors in online information hubs. Seizures, mental retardation, developmental delays, lack of speech, no treatment, or cure. From the very beginning, Fiona's aptitude and worth were questioned. Raising a Rare Girl depicts an almost daily uphill battle with physical therapists, doctors, family members, strangers, and a culture which consistently devalues the life of a person with disabilities. Quote, Among my fellow Wolfenshorn Syndrome parents, Linear writes, I've heard horror stories. Doctors telling parents they should terminate their unborn child that their child would be a burden to the family and society. When the health care of millions of Americans is up in the air, and those living with pre-existing conditions facing a perilously uncertain future, raising a rare girl comes at a time when our culture needs to once again grapple with our violent history towards disabled bodies and our flawed cultural value of normal. There is a hierarchy in our culture based on ability, and able-bodied people sit on top as the norm. But this ideology has a violent past and continues to be a struggle today. Only an hour from Lanier's hometown was Pennhurst State School and Hospital in Pennsylvania, an institution for people with intellectual disabilities. Lanier writes of NBC's investigative reporting in 1968, which exposed horrific inhumane conditions. Quote, the network's viewers saw close-ups of thighs narrower than knees, of wrists tied to bars, and ankles shackled to beds." Unquote. A slew of lawsuits in Pennsylvania and across the country had a domino effect. Congress eventually passed the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, later renamed the IDEA Act, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. As laws have changed, so too has culture. In Virginia, where Fiona began going to school, the Lanier family was empowered by medical professionals and local educators to support Fiona's growth. No goal for Fiona was too big. All that was needed was dedication and patience. This, in contrast to our nation's history, strikes me like it struck Lanier the first day Fiona went to school. Quote, with my phone's camera, I captured my fedora-wearing, sauntering 21-pound kindergartner claiming her rightful place in what would have been prohibited just decades earlier, unquote. Lanier writes, quote, the simple act of loving her was countercultural, unquote. In fact, 
much about raising and caring for Fiona was countercultural, even the name of her diagnosis itself. Lanier and her community opt for the name 4P- instead of Wolfenshorn syndrome due to the deeply ableist views of Dr. Hishorn and the medical field in general. Lanier describes a conference she and her family attended for 4P-, where she, her husband Justin, and still infant Fiona met other families with the syndrome. As they roamed the conference room, Lanier saw people with 4P- at all stages of life. Giggling Arnold running around with his father in pursuit, Maggie and her mother handing necklaces to Fiona to play with, Rebecca and her father enjoying a quiet moment eating together. Conversations about Fiona, about 4P-, about struggles and a day-to-day life came with ease. Here, in a room full of others who understood, she found a sense of normalcy. Quote, This was the gift of normal in this room, Lanier writes. Quote, My kid was perfectly unsurprising. Unquote. What if our culture and the medical field responded in the same way? What if our notion of normal could recognize its ableist biases? What if we questioned normal itself? Lanier does, time and time again, and we find her own bias, her own fragment of ableism hidden in her mind. To love Fiona, to raise and nurture her, broke her right open, exposed every tiny tender bit inside, and transformed her. Raising a Rare Girl is this story, the story of a woman transformed into a mother, into a role where the biases of others and herself appeared before her. What she does is what many of us need to do, erase any concept of normal and embrace the life we've been given. Thank you so much for uh, listening to the piece and reading it if you read it when it came out. Raising a Rare Girl is a very special book to me for many reasons. Um, Number one, because Heather Lanier uh, is a very special person in my memory and heart. Uh, She was my guide and mentor uh, during college. Um, I took a few classes with her uh, at Rowan University, and I learned so much from her about nonfiction and also about uh, ableism and uh, people with disabilities through her sharing her own stories. So uh, after many years of Heather Lanier reading and commenting on my works, I figured that I'd give it a shot and write a review of hers as well. Again, this is a lovely book. Highly recommend it to all of the listeners here and Once again, thank you for having me. In the Nua language, Tehachapi means a hard climb, which author and poet Maria Summers explains within her poem, A Hard Climb. Appearing in publications such as New Times, Broward, Palm Beach, among others, Summers says, I am a disabled poet who strives to find the ability within disability and the opportunity within catastrophe. A Hard Climb by Maria Summers Tehachapi, I am told, means a hard climb in the language of the Nuwa, the indigenous people of this hard scrabble land. The rugged terrain mounts on desert feet and at dawn the sun creeps over the eastern peak, wild with scrub oak and pinion pine. 
The transit like mine from east to west coast trails memories, dreams, despair, dust among particles of light. Oh, how it feels like progress, that journey, that narrative arc, to hatch a pea up and up and maybe, maybe someday, maybe over. For five years, my body has scrambled for a foothold in well-being while disease and its consort disability are loose, stones shifting beneath me daily, tripping me up, rolling me down the unforgiving graveled face of this occupied territory while the sun sinks into the snaking western ridge. Each day, hope's rays reach for me, rouse me to rise into courage, to return to my body and to carry its burdens beyond to Hatchapi. Writer Benjamin Dechter explores the challenges of dieting within the ketogenic diet. Within this story, the narrator reminds audiences that sometimes a diet that you must do can be far more challenging than a diet you want to do. The Ketogenic Diet by Ben Dechter Leo turns four today. After waking with the sun, he skipped around the house in his cowboy hat and tropical-colored vest. I'm now at the dining room table, reading the LA Times, sipping coffee. He speeds past, saying, Ickle me, pickle me, tickle me too, went for a ride in a flying shoe. In recent weeks, he's memorized several Shel Silverstein poems. He loves saying them as fast as he can. My daughter, Addie, has had a harder start to her day. After getting out of bed at eight and cuddling on the couch with Angel, our cat, seizures struck and my six-year-old fell back asleep. It's almost 10 o'clock when I hear her padding toward the kitchen. Wow, Addie, you look fantastic, I say. She wears a curly red wig and her Little Mermaid Ariel dress. Come on over here. Mom and I are making Leo's birthday breakfast. While true, my statement contains the sin of omission. Addie's meal will be separate and unequal. As I pour heaping ladles of pancake batter on the buttered griddle for Leo, Jackie gets out our newly purchased gram scale. Instead of hot and fluffy birthday pancakes drenched in maple syrup, Addie will be served some form of fat with a side of protein and a dash of carbs. Her meal is based on the ketogenic diet, a non-pharmaceutical epilepsy treatment. She's been on the diet for six months. The recipe for this morning's meal, eggs and toast, reads as follows. 32 grams heavy cream, 23 grams fat, butter, margarine, oil, or mayo, 5 grams Wonder Bread Light, 32 grams egg. As a visual, that's approximately two tablespoons of cream, one and a half tablespoons of butter, half an egg, and a tenth of a slice of bread, about the size of an index finger. Addie's current meals are more laboratory experiment than dining. Each fraction of a gram matters. If it's a tenth of a gram too heavy, we remove a portion and reweigh. This morning's eggs and toast brunch will provide Addie with 331.54 calories and achieve the desired four to one ratio of fat to carbs plus protein. Because her body will be using fat rather than carbohydrates as fuel, 
she will maintain a state of ketosis. In recent months, these high levels of ketones in her bloodstream have somewhat reduced her seizure activity. As is the case with many drugs as well, the exact reason for improved seizure control is unknown. With the guidance of a nurse nutritionist at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, we continue to make monthly adjustments to her menus. We were reluctant to take on the added stress of the diet, but Addie's seizures have been back for two and a half years. She's tried half a dozen anticonvulsant medications, including Vigabitrin, Depakote, Zonisamide, Topamax, Lamictal, and prior to the diet, Felbitol. Because nothing has controlled her seizures, her epilepsy is now considered refractory. Since we're striking out with drugs, Jackie and I agreed to try yet another non-pharmaceutical option. No harm had come from Addie's time in Chicago with the Russian faith healer, and maybe it was a coincidence, but Addie spoke her first sentences after one of her twice-weekly cranial sacral massages by an 80-year-old pediatric osteopath in San Diego. We remain open to any and all avenues of help. The idea of diet as a seizure-fighting tool is ancient. It's even mentioned in the Bible. In Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, Jesus said, This kind of devil, convulsions, can only be exercised with prayer and fasting. Diet-based treatments, popular in the 1920s, fell out of favor once anti-convulsant drugs became widespread in the mid-1900s. Thanks to Dr. Friedman at Johns Hopkins University, a modified version of the ketogenic diet gained renewed attention in the latter part of the 20th century. There was even a TV movie, First Do No Harm, about a Hollywood producer and his son who blossomed while on the diet. Spatula in hand, Leo positions the kitchen stepladder next to the griddle and climbs up. Can I flip, he asks. I think somebody just lost his job, Jackie says. When they're golden brown, I hold Leo's Spider-Man plate as he eases pancakes onto it. I stick a large number four-shaped candle into his birthday stack. He dashes off to the dining room, and I follow. I watch him light his candle with a wooden match. Addie's already at the table, drawing. With a black Sharpie marker, she sketches a stick figure with curly hair on my newspaper. Is that supposed to be me, I ask? She laughs, but doesn't answer my question. Jackie places Addie's plate in front of her, and we belt out happy birthday in good, if imperfect, harmony. Leo blows out his candle, takes a bite of pancake, and begins marching in place. He often eats while standing. Marching seems to be a birthday addition. Hey, birthday boy, I say. Chocolate milk? He nods and loads another hunk of pancake onto his fork. And Addie? Seltzer? Addie can drink as much diet soda, water, and seltzer as she wants. Cue rape, she says. I mail-ordered bottles of unsweetened flavors and often create cherry and grape sodas for her. With everything else she eats so tightly controlled, I encourage this rare, if empty, indulgence. Leo pours more syrup onto his shrinking pancake pile. Addie's tiny-to-begin-with pile of food remains untouched. Why isn't Mom having birthday pancakes, Leo whispers to me. Mom already ate, I say. I don't feel comfortable telling him the truth. Jackie's not eating pancakes because she doesn't want Addie to be the only one not enjoying them. So Jackie sips seltzer alongside Addie and pokes at a small piece of bread on her plate that matches Addie's in size and shape. But I'm going to eat your pancakes if you don't finish, Jackie says. Leo's eyes bulge, his mouth opens, and he devours his remaining pancakes. 
dinglehopper, Addie says as she combs her wig with her fork. All right, Ariel, finish your eggs and toast, I say, adopting my best King Triton impersonation. At last, like a starved animal, Addie inhales her meal and licks her fingers. I'm not sure she even tasted it. I'm relieved by the thought. It's 1 p.m. A motley crew of four-year-olds and their parents will arrive any minute for pizza and swimming. I've heated the pool to an expensive 88 degrees. In the kitchen, Jackie prepares all of Addie's meals and snacks for the day. At the moment, she's placing a slab of butter onto a fingernail-sized sliver of Wonder Bread. I don't know how long we'll be able to restrict Addie's food intake like this. It feels like we're depriving her of one of life's great joys. After confirming the precise mandated weight of each item on our gram scale, Jackie places each meal in individual Tupperware containers. This way we can enjoy Leo's party without having to excuse ourselves for portioning and weighing. The doorbell rings. I open the door to the first wave of party guests, but instead of greeting them with me, Jackie escorts Addie into the den. I'm not sure why until I see Addie's head jerk down and her shoulders thrust forward. A seizure. Biblical suffering right here inside my house. Hi, Luke. Hey, Tristan. Come on in, I say. Their parents follow. Behind me, Jackie lays down with Addie on our big red living room couch. Addie tries to fight off the seizures. Isn't Leo cute, she says. He's such a little guy, isn't he, Mom? Hey, Nice bathing suit, Miles. I like the smiling shark, I say. Leo appears in his blue bathrobe covered in footballs, baseballs, and basketballs. The three boys run downstairs. The door slams as they talk loudly, laugh, and make their way to the pool. On my way outside for lifeguard duty, tray of fresh-baked brownies in hand, I peek over at Addie. Jackie's covering her with a chenille blanket. Addie's falling asleep like she did six months ago at her sixth birthday party. She slept upstairs in her room while her friends and their parents enjoyed a petting zoo in our driveway. We even had a llama that Addie had specially requested. I felt sad for her then, just like now. For the next five months, while the rest of us eat pancakes, ravioli, and chicken pot pies, Addie continues to drink special oil we get by prescription, lick tablespoons of butter, and swallow a supplemental powdered drink called Keto Cow, which we buy at the pharmacy. We feed her just enough protein to continue growing and barely enough calories to maintain her health. While Addie doesn't complain about the meals, Jackie and I are unsure if this is a relief or another reason for major concern. Is the fact that she accepts this routine a sign of mental obliviousness? At a checkup, our neurologist warned us that kids on the diet often become desperate for regular food. We haven't seen indications of that, I said, at least not yet. But if we do, how do we handle that? I asked. You'll have to padlock the fridge and cupboards, the doctor said. Although we never resort to such techniques, Jackie and I now understand why tube-fed kids are great candidates for the diet. They're powerless to resist the meals. While she doesn't resist the meals we provide her, Addie's often hungry during the ketogenic diet year. Jackie carries several lunchboxes at all times full of pre-made meals of mayonnaise and bacon bits, Diet Coke, and butter. When it's hot, we offer her ice cubes or sugar-free jello. Six-year-old Addie develops a taste for lukewarm black coffee with sweet and low. Birthday parties are the worst. Yes, Ads, I see the chocolate cake, I say. How about another Diet Coke instead? 
Jackie and I receive disapproving looks from other parents as we offer Addie diet sodas and water. I sometimes wonder if we're creating an eating disorder to go along with the epilepsy. Addie loses weight consuming so much fat. One afternoon at Cheerful Helpers, while Jackie and I sit inside the soundproof parental observation room, another parent says, Addie looks so thin and beautiful. Addie has indeed transformed from an inflated, irritable girl during her ACTH injections to a paper-thin waif. The parent continues, you must share your secrets. Oh, I can tell you all about it later, I say. Even my own parents compliment us on Addie's trim figure. After a year, the 50% reduction in seizure activity is notable. Addie's quality of life degradation is equally notable. Despite her and our commitment to the strict regimen, Addie has not been able to participate in family meals, enjoy birthday parties, or have a cookie. She's more isolated than ever. It's after midnight one Sunday in January. Jackie and I walk downstairs for a late night snack. Our two cats, sources of comfort to both kids, lie asleep on the couch. An unexpected light radiates from the kitchen. We stop. In silence, we ease closer until we come upon an unexpected tableau. Addie kneeling on the kitchen floor with our two recently adopted dogs, Bernadette and Lady, on either side. Bernadette's a full-grown boxer pit bull mix. She looks like a reincarnation of Paley. Lady's a black lab puppy. The three of them sit in a circle in the glow of the refrigerator's open door. On the counter, a candle flickers. It looks like a seance. Surrounded by light and two dogs, Addie's eating out the contents of the fridge. Leftover spaghetti with her fingers, a piece of white bread, the remains of a bowl of chocolate pudding I'd made this evening. It doesn't feel festive. She's more like a wild animal with streaks of red sauce and chocolate across her face. On the positive side, I didn't know she can light a candle. Lady and Bernadette sit at attention, tails still, eyes locked on Addie's hands. We watch as she deposits food into their expectant jaws and into her own long, deprived mouth. Jackie drops down and wraps her arms around Addie. I know, Ads, she says. You're just too hungry. I stand in the kitchen doorway. The dog's attention remains fixed on Addie. Jackie turns toward me. The diet's over, she says. The diet's over, I say. We've had enough. That's all for this episode of the Kaleidoscope Podcast. Thanks again to PNC Bank for sponsoring this episode, as well as our contributors for their work bringing this podcast to life. Tune in next time for even more readings from Kaleidoscope Magazine. <laughs>